ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and ABC Listen. In a moment, what happens when Barbie goes to Pakistan? Now, if you're stunned by the treasures of the Vatican, you'll be staggered by the bank balance of the Catholic Church in Germany. A couple of years ago, it took in 6.7 billion euros via the so-called church tax. And until recently, polls showed almost 80% of Germans were quite happy to pay the levy, even if they never went to church. But in 2022, 523,000 Germans left the Catholic Church. It hit not just the finances, but its influence. So what's behind this collapse? Professor Claudia Nutella is vice president of the Central Committee of German Catholics. Right now, we know that a lot of people are leaving because of loss of trust, because of the child abuse. Changes take so long, and it's a question of how to gain trust again. Those who are leaving, they are often people who were active in their parishes as church members. For example, on the parish council, as youth leaders or in the seniors group, Almost everyone in the Catholic part of my friends knows such cases and they ask us, what should I do? It's not easy for them to leave. They are from the center of our church and that's a problem for all of us in Germany. As you say, they're not just people who were on the church roll but not very active. So we really are talking about a deep discontent among people who are still believers. Yes, they still believe. And there are some parishes who say, oh, you are still welcome. If you want to keep in touch, come to our groups, come to our worships, you are invited. Of course, it's complicated because officially you are excommunicated. If you say, I leave the church, it's, it's very difficult in Germany. So if you say, I don't pay church tax anymore, then you are excommunicated. But some parishes say you are still welcome. So these are people who are searching. They even think to do something else with the money. So I just talked to a nun a few days ago. And she told me there are people at the end of the year, they come and bring the money they actually had to pay as church tax during the year and bring it to me and say, do something good with my money. I want to give it to good projects, but I don't want to be a member of this church. But on this question of leaving the church, what does it actually take? Because it's not just for Catholics. If you're a Lutheran, if you're a Protestant, there's also a process. How dramatic is it to leave the church in Germany? Of course, with the church taxes, a lot of uh, institutions are paid. We have a lot of hospitals, kindergartens, schools, you know, all this stuff. And part of the church tax, it's financed by church tax. It's very important for German society. But I think one of the points is that people think it's old-fashioned and it's changing too slowly. For example, thinking of same-sex partnerships. We were talking about blessings for same-sex partnerships. In German society, it's accepted right now to live in these partnerships. There are marriages. And church is still on the 
oh no, we have to think about it. It's, is it a sin? What should we do? Just as an example. And they say, oh, no, we don't need a church like that anymore. A lot of people think we want to believe and we believe in Christ, but probably we don't want this old-fashioned church anymore. That could be a problem. But when you leave the church in Germany, it's very formal. You have to go to a local, I think almost like a court, and say that you wish to leave the church and don't you cut yourself off from the ability to have communion and even to have a Catholic or Christian burial. Yeah, that's it. Sometimes you you have to wait for weeks or months to get that appointment. And then you declare, right now, I don't want to be a member of this church anymore. And from that point, you don't pay church tax anymore, but you are excommunicated. You are not allowed to go to communion, to marry in the church, to uh, be godfather or godmother of a child, things like that, because you said, I don't want to be a member of that church anymore. And that's declared by not paying money anymore. That's the point. I think more and more parishes who say, if you are on your way and if you are seeking, you are welcome to keep in touch with us. Now, you've talked about the Synodal Way, which was this movement that was undertaken. The bishops took part, the laity took part, but the Vatican did not approve of this. Is that right? Yeah, we don't know exactly. So we had some letters from the Vatican and they told us, oh, Uh, That's the wrong way. We have the wrong questions there and lay people have too much power. So, yes, but we have not yet got an answer from the Pope. So we are still waiting for it. We would like to be seen as lay people, as members of this process. And our bishops are still talking to the Vatican about this uh, question. So, yes, it's not officially accepted, but it's not a synod. It's not like you had it in Australia. We just invented for Germany so to have more freedom, but it's difficult, yeah. But I see that even Pope Francis, who is characterised as being comparatively liberal, he said that this process that you undertook was not very helpful. So how radical were the suggestions? If you're upsetting, in inverted commas, Pope Francis, what was the process saying? We had four main issues. One is might and power in church. The second one was about all the sexual questions, same-sex marriages, people who got divorced and want to marry again, all these questions. The third was the priests, how they live their life as a priest. And the fourth topic was that about the role of women in our church. So you see, for us in our German society, these are very, very important questions. And we are in touch with Catholics all over the world. They want to discuss these questions too. We want to bless same-sex partnerships. We want to have them blessed. No marriage, but to have them blessed. We want women to get consecrated as priests. But our suggestion is to ask the Vatican again, to ask it if they could talk about it again, or in the first level to have them consecrated as a deacon. It could be seen as radical demands, but we think that are points we have to talk about. And, for example, talking about power in Catholic Church, we ask that lay people 
could take part in finding of new bishops, for example. So, yes, there are some points we want to change the way of living together in the church Mm. and being church together. But some of these uh, topics are now part of the the Synod in uh, in October in Rome. I think we started something. Just finally, Claudia, your critics, however, have made this argument that the Lutheran Church in Germany has become very liberal in its theology and it is also losing members. The Catholic Church in 2022 lost more than 500,000 members. The Lutheran Church lost almost 400,000 members. They say being liberal does not mean the church will grow. Yeah, we, we know. It's not only the question of being liberal, it's the question of how to live in a Catholic church. You know, the Pope said in an interview, there's already one fine uh, Lutheran church in Germany. We don't need another one. We don't want to become a Lutheran or Protestant church. We are Catholic and we want to be Catholic and to live together as Catholics. But we think there are some points we noted that changed and we learned something about all these questions. So not only becoming liberal will be uh, the part how to how we get back our people, how we convince people to become Catholic again or to stay in our church. It's more the question of how we act, how we live together, how we deal with all these questions, this horrible part of child abuse. So this is a point. And of course, how we talk about our hope and that what is important for us. And of course, that's a question for our church. That's a question for the Protestant church, but not only being liberal, that's not the only point. But we think it's one of the points. And if we ask people why they are leaving Catholic church, we get the answer that uh, a lot of them leave because of these moral questions. And I think it's not the right way to live in the 21st century anymore. And they leave because of uh, losing hope that a church is the right way. So that is a point. But liberalism is not the only point. Claudia Nutella from the Central Committee of German Catholics. And this is the Religion and Ethics Report. I'm not sure about your local cinema, but at mine, the lines have stretched out the doors and around the corner to see the movie Barbie. In the province of Punjab in Pakistan, fans are also eager to see the film, but they've had to put up with a few nips and tucks from the local censor. Shazib Walla is Pakistan correspondent for France 24. Shazid, uh, welcome. Look, just tell us briefly about this problem that Barbie has had getting to the big screen in Punjab. Well, it has been back and forth for this film in Pakistan's largest province of Punjab. The release of the movie was initially delayed pending an approval from the censor board and over the weekend the approval came in with four dialogues of the movie that were beeped. And then over the weekend, the, actually the clearance was taken away and the shows in cinema were stopped in midway and the audience were asked to leave theatres and get refunds and still there is not a lot of clarity on what is going on with the film. Yeah, why you mentioned there were beeps in the movies or bleeps in the movies. What did they object to? What did the censors object to? Well, there, uh, this was done under the pretext of what the Punjab authorities believe to be objectionable content, objectionable material. They say that some parts of the movie tend to promote homosexuality and show pro-LGBTQ content. Yeah, I mean, look, I've not seen the movie. I, I've not heard the claim that it has any uh, gay and lesbian content in it. But what 
sort of roadblock would that hit in the Punjab and in Pakistan? Uh, well, uh, the movie will have to go through again through the censor board and they'll have to give them an uh, approval. Uh, sometimes what happens is that in Pakistan, a lot of movies that come from Hollywood or from the West are actually censored a lot. A lot of scenes are cut away. We don't have a proper rating system in Pakistan. Like we don't have a system for above 18 films or above 14 films. So all the films that are shown here are normally shown in a way that they are family films. So most probably what will happen here is the movie will at the end get an approval, but most probably there will be some scenes that will be cut away. Uh, I mean, is it because the Pakistan authorities believe that it undermines the family or does it undermine traditional Islamic values? What is the rationale for some of this censorship? Well, Pakistan itself is a Muslim-majority country. It's a country of 200 million people and majority, 96% of the population here are Muslims. And it is a very conservative country as well. But the authorities in Pakistan tend to protect the family system. They actually think that these like movies and books and, and the literature that comes in sometimes actually challenge the family system or the Islamic values or traditional values in the country. So uh, there is a huge censorship and we have seen that in the past as well, in other movies as well. Yes, you mentioned other films. Wasn't there a problem a few months ago with a film that was shown, I think, at Cannes, I think to some acclaim, called Joyland? What was the problem there? Well, uh, Joyland was a Pakistani movie that made it to Cannes Film Festival. It was highly appreciated internationally, but the movie was also banned in Punjab, in the same province. The movie actually showed a story of a female transgender actress in the lead role who plays the role of a local trans dancer. And she falls in love with a married man. The film was as well, again, accused of showing objectionable material and promote homosexuality. And the film was banned in Punjab and it was it has still not been shown in Punjab. Yes, but this is a creation of Pakistan's own creative industries, its own film industry. What was the response uh, by the Pakistani people to the banning of one of their own films, which had had such a claim at Khan? The Pakistani film industry has been suffering a lot. There has been huge censorships on the industry. The content that is made is watched and it's censored. There is an unsaid ban on making films that talk about politics, that talk about religion, that are a bit critical of the society. So in itself, it's a very closed industry in Pakistan. There was a huge uproar, especially when the film Joyland was banned. Initially, it was banned all across the country. But the, then the clearance came in from the other parts of the country. It, it was shown in the other provinces. But at the end, Punjab province, actually, they said that they won't show it. The actresses, the actors, they came out. They actually talked about it on the media. They tried to lobby for it and saying that it doesn't show anything that is promoting homosexuality. It's just the reality in the country. And that happens. But it remained banned. Why is the problem or the challenge, uh, perhaps more accurately, always in Punjab province? Because as you say, many films, sometimes controversial, seem to have no problem in other provinces of Pakistan. Well, Punjab is the biggest province of the country. Here, the right-wing groups or the religious political parties are quite active. They have a big influence. Even though in the parliament of the province, they don't have a big representation, but what they have is actually the street power. They can bring out thousands and thousands of people on streets, and this is what actually the government is afraid of. So rather than challenging them, the government actually tends to accept their demands, and this happens really often in, in Punjab, not only when 
it comes to films or movies it also happens to school curriculum or to some books or to music so yeah so that is something which is very dominant in punjab which is the country's biggest province yeah good to talk to you uh, shazib wala he is the france 24 correspondent covering pakistan thank you for giving us some time here on the australian broadcasting corporation shazib thank you for having me And you're with me Andrew West and you're hearing about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world. Throwing yourself at the mercy of a higher power, seeking forgiveness, committing to a strict doctrine of behavior, even thought. Once upon a time you'd think immediately of religion, but today it's the social justice movement that demands very public repentance. Ian Baruma is a former editor of the New York Review of Books and a professor at Bard College in New York. His latest cover story for Harper's Magazine is called Doing the Work. What I think is that it's part of a Protestant tradition which has become very much part of the culture especially in the United States but also in northern Europe even among people who are not protestants or certainly among people who don't go to church which lays great stress first of all on public apology for straying from the virtuous path but perhaps more importantly in the 17th century and you still see many traces of this superior moral virtue was a mark of social status the elites in protestant countries like say the netherlands or the dutch republic in those days were not distinguished from other classes lower classes because of birth or wealth but because of superior moral virtue you can see this in many instances in the world today we're going to get on to that because that is a really fascinating aspect of this essay but i'm guessing ian that it would surprise many on the contemporary left who are pursuing this brand of activism that they are quite quasi religious in their methods and their impulses because i suspect many of them are defiant secularists yes that's why i don't use the word religion in the sense of believing in god or jesus but more that a lot of the more extreme social justice activists treat their ideas of social justice as a religious dogma not in the sense of again of believing in god but of something from which one cannot stray so people who don't agree or are skeptical are heretics they're not people who simply have a different view and in that sense it is quasi religious yes cannot have doubt that comes through very strongly in your piece doubt and of course humor mm. humor is always an enemy of true believers yes of course you're not against by the way the idea of accountability or apology for historical wrongs where has it been appropriate much of the black lives matter movement certainly had the right goals it would be crazy to say that efforts to emancipate women in society that have been going on for some time now are a nonsense i mean they were absolutely essential it's more that in our own time a lot of these goals have morphed into a dogma of social justice and racial identity and so on about which it is impossible to have any kind of skeptical thoughts it's when a movement to improve certain social conditions whether it's about race or gender or anything else turns from an active effort to improve society into 
a rigid ideology, then you have a problem. I'm thinking, though, of that very powerful illustration. You cite it in the Harper's essay of the late, great West German Chancellor Willy Brandt when he knelt at the site of the Warsaw Massacre. And this was seen to be Germany's you know, serious act of atonement for Nazi massacres. And it was incredibly powerful, wasn't it? It was, but that, of course, had nothing to do with dogma or ideology. That was a gesture, symbolic gesture, by the Chancellor of West Germany to show that post-war Germany was atoning for the Holocaust. It seemed a spontaneous gesture. I'm not sure it was, but it certainly was a necessary one in order to heal the wounds of the past, which could never be completely healed. It did a lot. There's another German thinker you refer to, Max Weber. Many of us have heard about him. Many of us have studied him. What did Max Weber say about the Protestant requirement for kind of moral cleansing? Max Weber said many things uh, about Protestantism. Not all of them were right. I mean, most famously, (laughs) he tried to explain why Protestant northern Western countries were more successful capitalists than either Catholics or East Asians, uh, Confucianists. Now, as we know from recent history, the Confucian countries of East Asia have been highly successful capitalists. But I think the insight he had was that, unlike, say, with Catholics, Protestants of a certain kind saw worldly success and the accumulation of wealth as a sign of being blessed by God. That, of course, fitted very well into the the sort of capitalist ethos of North America and Northern Europe. That is where he was right. He also saw the dangers of a kind of moral righteousness and smugness that came from that attitude, which was expressed in extreme intolerance of people who didn't, in the eyes of the Calvinists, come up to scratch morally, because, again, they were not people who had different views or anything like that, but they were heretics. They were not blessed by God, destined to go to hell. Yes, and Calvinism, of course, has at its core the notion of predestination, that you're already chosen. In fact, you use a phrase, or you borrow it, you certainly credit the uh, uh, great American intellectual John McWhorter. What is the phrase? Um, Not the chosen and not the the woke either. You're resistant to this idea of woke with a capital W because it's become so debauched as a term. What's the phrase, Ian? It's great. The phrase is the elect. And the reason I didn't want to use woke is because its meaning has become obscure. It began as a word in black circles, African-American that is. Now it's sort of become a catch-all phrase on the right for everything they deplore. And so I didn't want to use that. Yes, it's the elect. But of course, the way Protestants in history thought of this is not uniform. I mean, as you say, Calvinism is very steeped in this notion of predestination. But already in the 17th century, there were also many Protestants who doubted that they should go that far and felt, you know, if you'd accumulated enough virtue in your life, you should still be able to have a ticket to heaven so that it wasn't all simply predetermined. In the title of the essay, by the way, is a phrase, doing the work. What does doing the work mean in modern social justice activism? Well, doing the work means that you, it's not enough 
to be against racism, let us say, or to try and improve social conditions for discriminated minorities, you have to be actively anti-racist, which means that you have to constantly show how anti-racist you are by reaffirming an ideological idea of what racism is, and that racism involves a kind of idea of original sin, that everything, all social problems, all forms of economic deprivation and so on, go back to systematic racism by white people. Now, there's lots of racism by white people in history as well as today, but you cannot reduce everything to that. And I think the belief that you can has become a dogma, and doing the work is to constantly reaffirm that dogma. Yes, I wonder if the people who urge you to, quote, do the work also realise the religious antecedents of that. Uh, When I was a kid growing up, we had a lovely couple who lived nearby us. They were Jehovah's Witnesses. They never tried to convert us, but they always spoke of doing the work, usually on the doorsteps. Well, indeed, and and it's very much a religious term, and uh, it's used actually by anti-racist activists, but it's also used by the Opus Dei. I mean, Opus Dei means God's work. Mm. They call it the work, members of the Opus Dei, which is, of course, a very extreme orthodox form of Catholicism. Of course, when you say that part of doing the work, especially on questions of racial justice, involves constant discussion of systemic racism, you do point out that uh, for many of the people who speak of this, it's rather performative because it doesn't really involve any sacrifice on their part. Uh, How has America's economic elite become part of this movement, usually at no material cost to themselves? That's, of course, the attraction. It's much tougher to pay higher taxes to have proper public health and and education, both of which are in a very bad state in in America, and affirming what a virtuous person you are or what what a virtuous corporation is a fairly cost-free way to be, you know, among the elect. And some of the most interesting criticism of this quasi-religious dogmatic attitude to systemic racism comes from black intellectuals. And uh, one of the more interesting ones is a man called, that I quote called Adolf Reed, who's a Marxist. And he points out that if you constantly see race as the only reason for economic deprivation uh, and so on in American society, you overlook the question of class, which is very important and cuts across race, of course. If we look, for example, today at a couple of people that you mention in the essay, the chief executives, I think, of Nike, but also of Amazon, especially Jeff Bezos, whose wealth now runs into the hundreds of billions of dollars, Jeff Bezos and Amazon have very effectively marketed themselves as a company that stands up for social values. But there's a certain blind spot there, I would have thought, Ian. This is, of course, in the nature of capitalism. I mean, that one of its strengths that, that is infinitely adaptable. And when it sees a certain social movement, it's very quick to see commercial possibilities in it. I mean, you saw this with the Benetton ads, which was to sell fashion, but it used the idea of diversity and, and racial equality and so on in its advertising very effectively. One of the things about woke or the elect is that it's very much an elite phenomenon. It's not something that's most people in the countryside or outside the big cities or people 
who happen to be fairly highly educated in America or in other countries really care much about. It's, it's very much something of the elite. And the corporations that cater to the elite are always very attuned to attitudes of the elite and will tailor their advertising and so on accordingly. Ian Barume, he's one of uh, the most incisive social commentators you'll read, both in Europe and in the United States. He is a professor at Bard College in New York. Ian's latest book is called The Collaborators, but we've been discussing his cover story for Harper's magazine called Doing the Work. Ian, thank you for joining us on the program. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. There's a link to Ian's article and books and a longer version of that discussion at the Religion and Ethics Report homepage. And that's the show for this week. Find us at the ABC Listen app. Thanks to Anita Barrow and our audio panel beater, Roy Huberman. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.